Hi, this is Send7. I'm Stephen Devincenzi. In today's bonus episode, I speak to Nick Rooney. Nick is a filmmaker from the UK who has worked as a diplomat in Europe and spent a long time in Russia and Ukraine. In 2017, he released the film The Pillars of Heaven, which focuses on the war in Ukraine's Donbass area. In 2020, he released The Wolf in the Moonlight, which is a film that includes a series of interviews with Alexander Dugin, the Russian philosopher, often known as Putin's brain. In this episode, I speak to Nick about his experiences in Russia and Ukraine, and we talk about Alexander Dugin and his influence on Russian President Vladimir Putin. You might notice that Nick's perspective on the war in Ukraine is quite different to what you have heard on this podcast before, especially when he talks about visiting the city of Kherson during the Russian occupation this year. Nick's experience of visiting this city is quite different to the description given by Kherson resident Tanya of her experience of being in Kherson in the last bonus episode of Send7, released at the beginning of December. As always, this podcast is free, but if you'd like to support us and get access to the transcripts of every episode, including this one, go to send7.org support. For the rest of December, there is a €10 Euro discount on joining the yearly plan by using the code DECEMBERDISCOUNT. I greatly enjoyed talking to Nick. At the end of the episode, Nick says where you can follow him, watch his films, or buy his book. All of that information is also in the description of this episode. I bring you Nick Rooney. I'm joined by Nick Rooney. Hi, Nick. Uh, Hi, hello. Could we start maybe with you just telling us a bit about your life and your interests and what's taken you to this point? Um, Yes, of course. Um, So... I had a, a classical education originally. At uh, university, I studied Latin, Greek, philosophy, and ancient history. Um, and over the years, this eventually led me, for some reason, to an interest in international relations and diplomacy, which I then studied in in Russia, um, Belgium, and the UK. Um, I then followed that on with with a diplomatic career, working for the EU in Vienna. Um, during which I uh, focus particularly on the Ukraine crisis. Um, And due to my various interests uh, outside of that, in in film in particular, um, you know, although this topic was very interesting and very important, uh, I was always sort of perhaps creatively unsatisfied in some ways. And um, so I wanted to see how I could also explore my creative side as well as this diplomatic side um also it was exacerbated by the fact that as i was um working on this and as i was observing at the higher level in the diplomatic world um diplomacy just wasn't working on this crisis as we can see in the crisis in ukraine now it goes back uh until the days of 2013 2014 there's a long history to this war and it was very clear to me then as i was watching that the diplomacy was not working it was the deaf talking to the deaf um the West would say it's bits, Russia would say their bit. And we couldn't understand each other, we couldn't hear each other, and we couldn't um, find a solution to this. And that maybe 
sort of left me to become highly dis disillusioned with traditional diplomacy and carried out in that format. So so I left diplomacy and I um, took up a career in filmmaking. And so my first film was called The Pillars of Heaven, um, which was me going out to Ukraine um, during from the period um, of Christmas to the Epiphany and looking for a solution to the crisis. I traveled from the Western Carpathian Mountains to Kiev into the Donbass itself, asking all sorts of people from the local people, soldiers, civilians, priests, um, political leaders, religious leaders, uh, for their thoughts on this on this crisis. And you can see my findings and the results of this in the film, The Pillars of Heaven. Um, uh, and then this then, during the course of this film, I uh, then came across um, Mr. Alexander Dugin, which I'm sure you'll ask me certain questions about coming up now. Fantastic. Um, so you just mentioned there your transition from being a diplomat, I suppose, yeah. to to a filmmaker. You said that that was um, basically because you were disillusioned by the the process or the uh, failure to find a a peaceful solution to the conflict in in Ukraine in the Donbass in 2014 and and before is that right yes that's right um and that was certainly probably the main reason but as i said it was also a kind of artistic side that i've got that again wasn't being satisfied in diplomacy but that was the mainly the the main driver was originally yes this the fact that i um as i understood it diplomacy is supposed to find a way to avoid war, to settle the most intransigent international problems. And it was very clear to me that this hugely important problem was not and could not be tackled in that format. Um, and we can see the results today, how it's exploded. Uh, and uh, I think it could have been avoided and it should have been avoided um, had diplomacy done what diplomacy should do, essentially. Um do you have any particular actors to blame for the the failure of diplomacy on that part i know that at the moment both sides would really blame each other for not being able to to talk about this um would you say that there was any particular side that was not willing to talk in 2013 2014. well i think both sides had um legitimate points but the fact is that um well in, in, in certainly from what i was as, as i was acting for the west um i know we were saying our points and then russia would also say its points as i said both sides had legitimate claims in some ways and we just couldn't hear each other we couldn't find a, a way to implement the fears and hopes and dreams of each side um so uh, I think in the sense that the OS, in the OSC context, which I was working in, also the sort of, if you look at it from the NATO and the UN perspective, I think the West certainly has a lot more power and influence in these organizations. Russia doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so because we have more power and influence in these um, spheres and in these platforms, perhaps it, the burden was to some extent on us to try and to try and meet Russia somewhere in the middle, to try and meet it halfway, to try and find a solution to this. And because the West very much closed closed its ears to Russians' demands, um, I feel they 
I could see it in 2013, 2014, the frustration and the, the simple, <laughs> they won't listen to us from the Russians. Mm. Um, I, I mean, that, that, that was, that was certainly a problem. And, um, and the balance of the world is changing. The geopolitical structure of the world is, is very much changing and it, it could have changed totally differently and through a very peaceful mechanism had we been able to listen to each other. Yeah, but from the Ukrainian perspective, the Russian demands were too high. Sorry, in 2013-14, before the Maidan crisis broke out, um, Russia and Ukraine were pretty friendly, generally speaking, in those days. Um, there was this, you know, as I was also interested in the fact that I went to College of Europe, Bruges, which is sort of the training center for um, EU diplomats. And I remember even in this university context, we were talking about, um, it's called, uh, uh, there was the um, uh, agreement uh, the EU was trying to make with Ukraine. Um, it was a trade agreement that was going to bring Ukraine closer to Europe. Um, and Russia at the same time was trying to bring Ukraine closer to um, its Eurasian Economic Union. So already we were already clashing over influence on trade. Um, so uh, when the when the war broke out in well, not, yeah, well the war and the and the revolution or the coup whatever you want to call it in 2014, it was all over trade um, and influence. And um, even going back before this, you know, to the 1990s and, and further back in the 20th century. Um, how you look at the influence and the split of the nature of Ukraine from the east and the Donbass to the west, which has a far more um, Polish-Austrian uh, influence on its history. And then you look at the Donbass, which has a very strong Russian influence on its history. Um, so you could see all sorts of dividing lines already appearing. Mm. Um, as I said, in 2013, 2014, even with Yanukovych, who was originally from the Donbass himself, that leader. Mm. Um and uh you know so so in the in the bruges context in the european context um we knew this was uh, uh this this had the potential for a massive explosion that what we were doing was a tug of war of russia over ukraine for influence what we thought would only be in the economic sphere mm. um and then obviously the maidan happened and the war happened um, and we realized how close the economic um, situations are to military situations and how, you know, this was a matter of life and death, it seemed, for, for Russia, probably more than it is for Europe. And um, we knew this to a certain extent, but um, we didn't ever believe that it would ever really explode like it has done, I suppose. That, that's that's what, what I would say. But obviously, you know, both sides are suffering in this ukraine is paying more than anyone it's terrible the loss of life and suffering that's going on in ukraine at the moment and but as i said what what grieves me so much is i think this could have absolutely been avoided then in the oc context in the diplomatic context in that period it could well, have been all avoided just uh briefly then how do you think that it could have been avoided well um in terms of if you look at uh the economic and the geopolitical orientation of that part of the world. Um, I think if you go back to the 1990s, we need to look at a security arrangement and a trade arrangement and an economic arrangement between Europe and Russia. So since the collapse of the, the Berlin Wall, um, 
Russia has not found itself in a comfortable place economically and in terms of security with the West. Um, and the West hasn't found itself either in a, in a comfortable place economically and in security um, sphere with, with Russia either. Um, so if we could have come to an agreement with Russia on these matters, Ukraine could have done a deal in terms of trade and security with both sides and recognized everyone's would have had a win-win situation. Russia could have ensured that it had security guarantees, its trade, its economic links with Europe. Europe also could have uh, made sure its security guarantees and trade and economic links were were, were secured. And it, it could be a win-win in that situation. As I said, as Ukraine is kind of a borderlands between Europe and Russia, mm. it wouldn't have um, suffered as a consequence of because this I mean make no mistake about it I think not only I think this but many people think this it's a prox it's a proxy war going on in Ukraine now um, it's a war between the West and Russia NATO and Russia and over the battle the territory is Ukraine um, so it was for really for the West and Russia to decide their security economic and trade differences I I wonder whether uh, and I think I've heard Ukrainians say that uh, when they hear an argument like that that um that really their their voice is more important than than the west that they don't like the idea of this being a a proxy war that uh, in fact it's uh, something which is really intrinsic to them and if they had to make a trade in a way to for example not be able to join the european union or not not be able to join nato then that is a violation of their own sovereignty, of their own ability to choose their own future. Well, I mean, I suppose it's what you mean by Ukrainians, because I don't know which Ukrainians you're talking about. Certainly Western, some Western Ukrainians would find this. I mean, even when 2015, 2016, when I went out to Ukraine to do my documentary, a huge diversity of opinion of, of what is Ukraine and what Ukrainians want. Some people were for the West, some people were certainly for Russia, and some people just wanted independent, peaceful, neutral life. Mm. Um, and that has exploded even more so. I mean, if you go to the people in the Donbass, in, in Donetsk People's Republic, Lansk People's Republic, these areas, you undoubtedly, unquestionably will find people who believe they are Russian. They are Russian. They are part of Russian civilization, the Russian world. If you go to people in um, in the western part of uh, Ukraine, in Lviv and in Galicia and all these areas, you will find people who find far greater um, uh, sort of camaraderie with Poland and with and with Austria and with uh, with Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and so Ukraine historically and even now is 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 very split on these issues and you know even looking looking at it historically ukraine might not like it but it, it is a historical fact that this unfortunately um ukraine has been the battleground for centuries over for great empires fighting over influence it's a tragedy um you can see it in the second world war you can see it way before that as well um it is a, it's a key geostrategic space in the eurasian heartland and and that is the problem that is the problem Okay, well, um, I, I was aiming to jump straight into your more recent uh, film documentary, which was uh, the, the Wolf in the Moonlight from 2020, I think, which uh, I watched uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, is excellent, and I'm going to recommend to everybody very soon. But you've just mentioned there the Pillars of Heaven, which was 
your previous documentary, which was filmed in Ukraine, was it in 2014? No, it was um, filmed. I went out there in 2016. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to say I've been so I've been following this conflict from the very beginning, 2013, 14, in the diplomatic context, and then on the ground, 2016, and then with um, Alexander Dugin. In it, the film was actually we shot it in 2018, but I finished the film in around yeah 2019, 2020. Yeah, and then and then very recently, I have also been out to um, Ukraine this year see what's happening so i've been following this in, in close detail throughout all these years excellent fantastic um before we start talking about dugan then could you just maybe mention any of the uh, conclusions or uh, any of the highlights from the pillars of heaven um well yes um so the pillars of heaven uh i looked at it in certainly um in the framework of a geopolitical but also a kind of religious look on this because i i looked at the <laughs> i spoke to various religious leaders from the um the leader of the greek catholic church to philaret who's now well he was then in charge of the ukrainian orthodox church as things um and it was just looking at the idea of forgiveness um kind of charity and and, and mercy towards each other um so it was those deep spiritual questions I was looking at and, and the nature of war and why wars happened um and so it was these deep questions I was looking at and and I you know from from simple people to soldiers to that they didn't want this war they didn't want to kill each other and it's two brothers fighting each other it, it's it's terrible what was happening um and so there were some real heartfelt moments in this but also some profound spiritual uh questions that that were explored in this um which i believe were relevant on the diplomatic and, and military front um and i think it would be useful for for people to certainly to watch this and as i said it gives context to the current crisis we're in now that this you know it was predictably going to happen and explode because it wasn't being resolved then um it was just as as um, merkel has just recently said in an interview uh the Minsk agreement and, and during the whole of this period, unfortunately, it was buying time for a greater war to explode when it could have been completely avoided, in my view. Great. Well, in your, uh, you say your film shot in 2018 and released in 2020, yeah. uh, The Wolf in the Moonlight, you were talking to Alexander Dugin. Could you tell us a bit about who Alexander Dugin is? So Alexander Dugin is a famous and certainly controversial figure. Um, he's a Russian philosopher, um, geopolitician and strategist, if you will. Um, he is known in the West as Putin's brain or Putin's Rasputin. Um, I don't think he's particularly liked in the West. I think he's certainly respected, but I don't think he's liked. Um, uh, he's said to have Putin's ear. Um, he thinks of himself as a kind of Kissinger or Merlin figure in some ways. Um, I I don't think very often it seemed to me the popular understanding of Dugin was not really correct. I think he's a very interesting and sort of certainly controversial and certainly dangerous thinker, as he himself says. Mm. Um, and I think the film certainly shows this. And also there will be a book called Talking to the Wolf, which will have my full interviews with with Dugan. Um, many of the things I couldn't fit into the film are in the book. Um, so it, it, it's well worth looking at. Ex really. yeah. Excellent. And uh, really, he, he speaks really fantastic English, very impressive English. 
to all of the people who are learning English from this podcast, you can easily uh, understand what uh, Dugan says. Although, of course, he speaks in quite a philosophical and uh, quite a uh, highly educated way. Uh, his English is, is really, really good. Um, what did your conversations with Dugan focus on? Um, we talked about uh, a huge variety of things, from philosophy to faith to geopolitics, grand strategy, Putin, the war in Ukraine, um, beauty, time, history, all, all sorts of things. As I said, he was a, a fascinating person to talk to because he had so many interesting answers to all sorts of you know, questions that many people would have a very cliched or stock sort of answer. He had a totally original <laughs> answer in some ways to all these different points. Dugan, he, from what I gathered from The Wolf in the Moonlight, he seems to think that Russia has a rightful place as a powerful empire. Does he justify this? And do you think that... Uh, that Dugin thinks that Russians are better than other people. He told me an interesting story with uh, um, uh, that when he met Zbigniew Brzezinski, an American geopolitician who famously wrote the Grand Chessboard, and he said that when he met Brzezinski, um, there was a chessboard in front of them, and he he asked uh, Brzezinski, he said, "Do you think that chess is a game for two people?" And Brzezinski said, "No." Chess is a game for one person. He says, I play and then I tell you where to move your pieces on the other board. And he says this is how he sees um, uh, and how Russia sees international relations and how it sees geopolitics. So and in the world at the moment, he says that there's only one global superpower. or that's how the West conceives the world. So he wants to establish what's called a multipolar world order, where there will be multiple poles, i.e. poles like Russia, China, Europe, America. They will each be equal. They will have their own say on how the world should work. They will have control over their spheres of influences, if you want to call it that. And so he's not saying that Russia is the best. He's not saying that Russia should have sole control over the world. He's saying that it should be reconstructed on 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 that basis in, in terms of a multipolar world order that's what he was talking about yeah i think that putin has actually made reference to this quite specifically uh, in some speeches recently where he's spoken about the fact that the the world needs to move to become a multipolar uh place and instead of uh, having this what he sees as us hegemony uh, that we have at the moment. Uh, so I suppose that he's, well, Dugan may have influenced his thinking on this. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. It's it's become, particularly after this war has now broken out this year, um, I think the Russians have come out openly and said this, the Russian leadership that is, but I think Dugan's been saying this for 20, 30 years now, since the 1990s. So I think he is, and he would claim this, he's certainly... Um, influence this thinking on multipolarity i think even uh, he told me and it's in the book as well that he um he sent his book um which outlines this theory to lavrov the foreign minister of russia and lavrov yeah. said he completely agrees with this so yeah it's, it's absolutely it's become russian official policy and, and uh, position in the wolf in the moonlight at one point dugan says that russia essentially should have conquered ukraine in 2014 do you think that he wanted the full-scale invasion that started in February? Um, 
I don't know what you mean by full scale invasion. If if you mean what's happened now to have happened then, then um, I I don't think he would have wanted how many troops they've got now, half a million or maybe more. I think the Russians have got there. I think he he you're right. He certainly mentioned this, and I think he probably did want. He said Russia should have taken Eastern Ukraine then in 2014, like they did in Crimea, sort of in kind of a probably what he meant was something like a uh, a, a bloodless coup um, in, in terms of that um, it was very clear in 2014 that a significant portion of the eastern Ukraine um, didn't really support what was happening on the Maidan in western Ukraine. That's what he said. Um, and so um, Ukraine wouldn't have been in a position to Western Ukraine wouldn't have been in a position to stop uh, kind of a union with with Russia um, on the eastern Ukraine. And also he he would argue that many people in eastern Ukraine would have wanted to join Russia in Kharkiv and Donetsk and Luhansk and Odessa um, and Mariupol, all these places. They 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 all speak Russian. They have very historical Russian links and even have relatives nowadays with Russia. So he said this would have happened peacefully. Um, and then the question of Ukraine would have been settled. That, that's what he was proposing. He was saying that, obviously, the fact that they didn't do it um, uh, and the fact that NATO then came in with support of, of weapons and um, you know, this sort of policy, that, that, that that's the reason why we have this explosion of a war. That, that was what he said. So in, in his mind, he says, um, since Ukraine left the Soviet Union in the 1990s, uh, he has seen that this is a current. This is a problem for Ukraine because, as as he says, culturally, linguistically, historically, Ukraine was split between the east and west, between a very Rus- Russophile east and a more Western west of Ukraine. So he's seen the structural problems of Ukraine. He said, he said he he thought this could have been solved after the Maidan when it was clear the west was going to go towards we- the west itself. Western Ukraine, that is, was going to go towards the west. While the East didn't support it, he said. Uh, he said. Um, so that that's that's what I think he meant. Okay. Yeah. Um. You seem to have uh, kind of uh, questioned my use of the term full scale invasion. There. I think the reason that I would say full scale invasion is because they sent hundreds of thousands of soldiers from the south uh, uh, through Crimea into Kherson and Zaporizhia regions and from the north into the Kiev region and all of the north uh, Sumy region and uh, and all of the northern region where they tried to, in, in my, uh, from all I can see, tried to conquer that area for about six weeks before they gave up. They then occupied Zaporizhia region and Kherson region for the last uh, 10 months or so. Uh, and uh, of course, they've been sending missiles all across the country. Do you not think that that's a full-scale invasion? No, I, I thought you were talking about 2014. And, and as okay. I said, what, what, what he meant was um, in the kind of way they did in Crimea, that they'd send sort of little green men in ah, okay. to, Excuse me. To, yeah, to, yeah. To, to these parts. That That's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Just whilst you something else that you mentioned there, you often talk about the um, the kind of Russophile East uh, and potentially South as well, even mentioning Odessa there as well. Which is, of course, in the in the south. Um, uh, we it's very difficult for us to know how many people 
were or even today still are Russophile and uh, actually would like to see Ukraine or their part of Ukraine kind of incorporated into Russia. Um, the, in fact, the, the last guest on this podcast before you was a woman from Kherson, and she said that um, she thought that it was in her city of Kherson only 10 or 20% of people, uh, she said 20% maximum, uh, that she thought from from Kherson. From your time in um, in eastern Ukraine and western Ukraine, from or everywhere you've been, what kind of proportion would you expect it to be in different places? Um, well, you're absolutely right. It's a very difficult question, and it depends on when you ask this question. I think if you'd asked this question 2013, 2014, it would have been a lot simpler, the answer in the east and the south. Things have definitely changed during this war. I don't think I'd agree with your previous guest about Kherson. I, I went to Kherson when the Russians were there, actually. And I would say it's probably more around 50, 60 percent would, would identify themselves with Russia, I'd say, of the Sorry. people who were there. Sorry, can I just say, when did you ask uh, ask that? You said when the Russians were there what, over, over the last 10 months? Yeah, I, w- I was there. I went there in, in the summer. Wow, that's I amazing. I visited. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And, um, and but then I... As- and so, you, yeah, I mean, you I, got the feeling that during the uh, occupation time, during the time that the Russians were in control of, of Kherson city, you think that half or more of the people were pro-Russian during that time? Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I was there. It was um, you did see Russian soldiers about. They were guarding the strategic parts of the city. Um, but life was pretty peaceful, to be honest. And shops were open. They had, for some strange reason, they had better supermarkets there than they did in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, it was a strange sort of environment. But I would say, yeah, the, of the people who were there, the majority, well, 50 to 60 percent, I'd say, were very much pro-Russian. There were some people who didn't like the Russians. That's true. Yeah. Um, but then if you go to Donetsk and Luhansk, I didn't find a single person who would say they wanted to um, reunite with uh, Ukraine again. It was, it was, I'd say, well over ninety percent in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. You're um, to, um, in in like, for example, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, city, the city, uh, which yeah. have been under under the kind of separatist control since twenty fourteen. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. In the, in those regions, again, I, I was there in the summer, and it was um, unquestionably because these people and I saw it. They they have been bombed for eight years. And I even witnessed a, an evacuation from a monastery, which the Ukrainians were bombing. Um, it was incredible. They, they were nuns. They were bombing nuns and priests. Um, so, I mean, unfo- there's terrible things happening on both sides in this war. But unfortunately, very often in the West, it's not reported on the terrible things happening in Donetsk City and even in monasteries and all these other places. Um that's why I'm saying it. I hope the war ends soon, as soon as possible, and there's peace because all the terrible suffering that's going on. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I can only imagine uh, Tanya, who was our last guest, uh, listening to you say that 50 or 60% of the people in her city were pro Russian. I can only imagine her saying that her husband kept their shop open during the whole time that uh, the during the occupation. And he uh, only did so because he wanted to retain some kind of normalcy to his life, but uh, which po- possibly someone like yourself seeing him doing that may have taken that to be this is uh, possibly, you know, a, a sign that he may be pro-Russian or, or kind of norm- when in fact he was he was not. 
Well, I mean, as, as I admit, I, I admit there were people who were against Russia, no question about that. However, there were also people who were for Russia. And um, I, I spoke to quite a few people on the street um, and you get a general sense in these sort of areas that it felt calm. It didn't feel like there were they're gonna, there's going to be riots and they were going to be overthrown immediately. And even if we look at it now, the Russians have not left us on. They're just on the other bank of the Dnieper River. Yeah. Um, so and some uh, some people are being killed uh, there now. I know. From well, the, it, from it, the it, artillery it, being sent in there from the uh, other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, it may be in Ukrainian control, but they don't really control it in some ways because they're being attacked constantly. Mm. Um, and I don't know how many people are actually even living in Herson at the moment, because I think it'd be pretty miserable conditions there at the moment. So, yeah, I, I suppose also in a city which is under occupation like that. And as Tanya said, um, she deleted all of the things from her phone and things like that, because she was scared that if uh, a Russian soldier took her phone and saw that she was pro-Ukrainian, then she would get in trouble. And so it's possible that asking people questions in a place like that, like, are you pro-Russian, that they may, they may just say yes because they're scared of the repercussions of saying no. I mean, I, I didn't actually find that, to be honest. I think I had a pretty free reign asking who I wanted, what I wanted. That was my experience. What I would say is that, on the other hand, when I went to Western Ukraine, um, people were frightened of saying that actually they like the Russians. In Kiev, this was a problem. And in Odessa, this was a problem. Um, so uh, <laughs> on both sides, you could make that point, to be honest. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, of course, in Russia itself, you can get in trouble for reporting things the wrong way, right? Like, for example, saying using the word invasion is illegal, I believe using the word war is illegal still, I think. Is that right? Um, you mean talking about if you uh, if you call it a war instead of the special military operation in in the yeah. press? Yeah, yeah. I, th I don't think they like that. It's true. But again, in Ukraine, um, if I started to mention what was happening in Donetsk or the Minsk agreements, I was shut down. Mm. So unfortunately, there's propaganda war on both sides on this. Unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to Dugin then. Uh, well, the big question: Is he Putin's brain? Um. Again, I'm not sure what exactly you mean by that, but that's certainly his popular title. You're right. Um, he himself said that um, he does have an influence, but it's not always permanent. I think it's kind of a fleeting influence. He certainly he claims sort of credit for things like multipolarity, Russia's you know um, uh, strategic alliance now with Turkey and Iran. Um, and um, also, to some extent, what's happening in Ukraine now. But I, um, I, I don't think he has constant influence on what Putin's doing. Um, uh, it's as I said, it's it's fleeting, but sometimes powerful. I think that's how he would think of it, and how I certainly seem to understand it. Yeah. Do you think that they speak very often, or is that not something you can? Um, I, I well, yeah, I don't know, but I I think he also said that he thinks what some of his most powerful influence has just been his writings and his comments. Um, that he said often his books and his articles are doing more work than he is himself, because people who don't have time to think themselves read these things, and then this is passed on up the ladder, obviously to to mm -hmm. decision makers. Um, looking at his uh, Wikipedia page or in English, 
he's described as, well, it says that some people describe him as neo-fascist. Do you think that he is fascist? Um, well, no, because if you read his books, he actually says his he's got written a book called The Fourth Political Theory, which, um, again, he, he says it goes beyond the three sort of theories of the 20th century are liberalism, communism and um, fascism. Um, and they have failed. And so there's a need of a, of a fourth approach. So he would claim not to be any of these. He would claim not to be a liberal, not to be a communist, not to be a fascist. So he 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 himself would say, no, he's not that. On the 20th of August, Dugan's daughter, Daria, was killed in a car bomb in Moscow. And most people think that this was intended to kill Alexander Dugan himself. Russia was always blaming Ukraine for this, and more recently, US intelligence has also said that they believe that some Ukrainian officials were behind this. Do you think that losing his daughter would have had any effect on how Dugin sees this war? Um, absolutely, I, I think it has. I think, um, you know, I, I would have hoped that perhaps such a tragic event would have um, steered him towards a peaceful and religious contemplative approach. But from what I can see, he seems to have doubled down and steeled his resolve that he, maybe understandably, he said that um, now we need victory because of it, because he's lost his daughter. So it's 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 made him even more supportive of a, of a strong Russian approach to this war. Um, from That's what I can see from his comments. And even with the, what the Russians say, the withdrawal from her son, um, he made some cryptic uh, reference to the king who couldn't um, provide rain for the crops and the king who can't provide rain for the crops, uh, the people should overthrow him. <laughs> so, um, so he's taken a, quite a hard line. It's sort of, it's hardened his resolve, it seems to me, um, on this. Have you had any communication with him more recently? Um, I think it's quite difficult for people in his position to speak to Westerners at the moment. Um, so, I mean, as I said, I think there is on both sides, there is a kind of hysteria about, um, you know, uh, Russians speaking to Westerners, Westerners speaking to Russians. And this is kind of part of the Asian warfare presumably going on at the moment. I, I don't think this is going to help for a peaceful solution. Um, if hopefully we have one day a situation where we can speak to the Russians and the Russians can speak to us as as friends and not enemies that, as I said, we could end the war and end the suffering. Um, and, and that's what, to some extent, this film and also the book is, is, is about. It's it's offering a platform for, for dialogue on these matters of spiritual, geopolitical and philosophical matters of, of each side in this new universe we're in now, after this war, um, trying to understand and talk to each other. I think that should be the goal going forward, not to sort of recriminations against each other. Yeah, great. Were there any um, questions that Dugan himself didn't want to answer when you asked them? Um, surprisingly, no. He was actually very frank and forward on all topics, really. Um, now, I, I thought there might have been, but no, he was uh, open to answering pretty much anything, really. Okay, then. Well, um, what are you working on at the moment? Um, at the moment, I'm just finishing up a film called Guilty Rebel, um, which is based on Shakespeare's poem, um, The Rape of Lucrece. 
um, with I'm using the uh, narration of this poem by the wonderful Sir Richard Burton. Um, and so it's going to be a 60, 67 minutes, um, beautiful film we shot in Italy, uh, in a castle in the mountains. Um, and it's um, going to be released this year, uh, 2023. And that's what I'm working at the moment. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Um, yes, I would. Um, I know at the moment there's a lot of hostility between the West and Russia at the moment, particularly in the media, and we do have this information warfare going on at the moment. But I think it's terribly important at the moment to promote peace and reconciliation between the West and Russia, that this is what diplomacy should be doing. We should be looking for peace between each side. Um, the longer this goes on, the greater the risk of catastrophe leading up to nuclear war. Um, and we really need to sit down and really listen to each other and understand each other. We failed to do this in 2013, 2014. We need to do it now. We need to listen to each other and really try and solve this, get to grips with it, because so many thousands of innocent people are dying and it can only get worse. Um, and and that's that's all I'd like to say. If my films can help this or if my writings can help this, then um god help god god help us all i mean we need god's help for peace in this scenario um uh and if my films can any in any way help this then then that would be wonderful um but if not then in i hope some in some way we can reach a, a peaceful understanding between each other that that is all i'd say and, and as i said i hope the media can help steer us in this direction and not just foment further discord between each other Fantastic. I I watched your film, uh, The Wolf in the Moonlight. I watched it on Amazon. Is that where you would recommend most people uh, watch or, or there, is there some other place that you would tell them to go to? Um, yes, it's available on Amazon, Google Play, Voodoo, YouTube movies. Um, I think it's also out on um, DVD and um, at Blu-ray in the US, possibly the UK. Um, so yeah, they, they, people can watch the Wolf in the Moonlight and the Pillars of Heaven on these platforms and uh, Guilty Rebel next year, hopefully when it comes out. Great. Fantastic. Um, yeah. How, sh if people want to follow you or contact you, what should they do? Uh, well, they can check out my website, theatreoflifeproductions.co.uk, or they can, um, they could also check out my uh, YouTube page again, Theatre of Life Productions. You can find my shorts on there sort of, um, and other clips and things. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nick Rooney. Thank you very much for having me.